I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pete, and today's story, well, it starts with a song. Don't worry if you don't recognize it. You will in a minute, or if you don't, well, you really don't need to. Just listen for a second. Okay, so what does that slightly schmaltzy, sad but sweet melody make you think of? Soft-focused sunsets? Candle-lit dinners with wine and roses? This is The Homecoming by Canadian musician Haygood Hardy. And for a lot of people, it still sparks warm memories, even more than 50 years after it debuted. Just look at the comments on its YouTube video. This is the song I walked down the aisle in my wedding to so long ago. I stand in amazement of this beautiful genius that brings all who hear its creation such peace and calm. Ah, a true masterpiece. A masterpiece, no doubt. The most beautiful song ever created. The Homecoming is older than I am, but I grew up hearing it. I also grew up hearing a certain story about it. A somewhat sinister story. That the homecoming wasn't by Haygood Hardy at all. That it was stolen. And that my mom knew the truth about the wronged musical genius who really composed it. Every time I hear Haygood Hardy, I song the homecoming, I get upset. Because it's so obvious to me that that's Ivan's song. Ivan Gondos was a cocktail pianist in the lounge at Deerhurst, a resort in Ontario's Muskoka cottage country that's still there today. My mother, Rosemary, worked as a chef there. It was the 70s, 1973. Everybody had a drink and Ivan was right at it. The piano lounge, honestly, sounds amazing to me in all its 70s splendor. I see a very brown room, gold carpet. The waiters carried cork line trays and delivered the coffee and brandies. And Ivan sounds fairly splendiferous too. This is him from an album he recorded there called Ivan Plays Favorites. It was magnificent. Ivan was a large, tall Hungarian man and he had fingers like spiders. So he would play every note on the piano, up and down. Sometimes he played both the piano and the organ at the same time. Everyone was mesmerized. And his signature tune was, well, listen for yourself. Mm -hmm. 
pretty darn close to Haygood Hardy's The Homecoming. Well, as far as he was concerned, that was his song. And as far as I was concerned, that was his song. Because I heard it so many times, night after night, and that'll always be Ivan's song for me. The story of Ivan's stolen song was just one of my mom's repertoire of stories from her pre-kid days at Deerhurst. I'd heard it so many times, it had sort of faded into the background, like cocktail piano music. But then, a couple of years ago, I'd found myself questioning. Was a hit song from the 70s really stolen? And who was Ivan Gondos? I'm Pete Mitten, and this is Storylines. It's a new weekly documentary show from the team at the CBC Audio Doc Unit. Every week, a different journalist follows one story, meets the people at its center, and makes it make sense. 88,000 albums? Yeah, it's a lot, I guess, isn't it? A lot. That's yeah. a, it's a gold record. Yes, it's a. Did you get a, a Did you get a gold record? I got a, I got a gold record from Mayor Crombie. That's Haygood Hardy speaking with Peter Zosky on Morningside in the eighties. Hardy died in the late nineteen nineties of lymphoma, but I did speak with someone who helped make the homecoming a hit. My name's Alexander Mayer. Uh... Al Mayer was a juggernaut in the nineteen seventies and eighties Canadian music industry. He was Gordon Lightfoot's manager for years, and he co-founded the Attic Records label. We had 114 gold, platinum, and multi-platinum records. But Haygood Hardy was not like most of the musicians Al worked with. First, with his giant glasses and penchant for collared shirts and ties, he looked more like an accountant than a musician. He was from an establishment family. His grandfather was a judge. His great-uncle had been an Ontario premier. But after studying at Trinity College in Toronto, Haygood pursued his passion. Playing jazz vibraphone with some of the big names of the day in 1960s New York. By the 70s, with a young family, he'd settled back down in Toronto and found a new line of work, composing jingles for TV and radio commercials. One in particular took on a life of its own. He had had a tea commercial for Salada Tea. Salada Teas. 22 teas in one bag. That had been very popular in Canada. The tea commercial music was, of course, the homecoming. Salada. Déguster a petite gorgée, toute la saveur, toute la douceur et toute la finesse. There were a series of ads with cozy scenes of people getting together for tea at grandmother's house, at a church function, and they aired across Canada in heavy rotation on TV and radio. Whether or not they helped sell tea, Hardy's music hit the spot. And a number of people had got in touch uh, with the ad agency for Salada, trying to find copies of the song. Still, no record label wanted to release it, until Al. He had apparently been turned down by all the record companies in Canada, the majors that he had approached. He played it for me, and I said, I like it, I'll release it. This was the mid-70s. Popular music was hard rock and disco, not easy-listening instrumentals. So it took a lot of time and energy to convince Top 40 Radio to play it. 
And when they did, it usually went to the top five on the radio stations in popularity. It was a very moving piece of music. You know, we knew from the beginning we had a hit. Uh, it was just a matter of convincing the rest of the world. And eventually they did. The homecoming would go gold, then platinum. The Juno Award to the best composer. Haygood Hardy would win Juno Awards as composer and instrumentalist of the year. Haygood Hardy. It was even the best-selling sheet music in the country. And Al says the success couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Haygood was a gentleman, a charming gentleman. Uh, everybody who knew him liked him. This is very heavy company for a kid from Oakville, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is indeed an honor. Thank you. He'd go on to compose music for movies like Anne of Green Gables and have his own CBC TV special. Hi, my name is Haygood Hardy, and I wrote a tune called The Homecoming. All thanks to that one little ditty he dashed off as a jingle for a tea commercial. But then, the pianist from Deerhurst came knocking. You probably know guys now. I couldn't Ivan somebody, was it? Ivan Gondos. Yeah. So who was Ivan Gondos? Well, if he was obscure back in the 70s, there's hardly a trace of him today. I did manage to track down an old friend and former student of his, Roy Robson. Oh, yeah, he was. He had a very winning personality. He was very popular. The women loved him. <laughs> Roy's just turned 90. When I visit him at his condo in King City, north of Toronto, he says he hasn't talked about Ivan in years, but the memories are still close to the surface. Roy knew him as Louis, not Ivan. Louis Yvonne Foy Galant Gondos. Anyway, I wanted to show you what yeah. Louis looked like. Sure. That was him. You know, I've never really seen a picture of him. There's a there's an album cover online that has a sort of black and white picture of him, I guess. But it's well, it's, of... it's this picture. Okay, right, 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 right. And that's the two of you. Yes. In the old photo, you can see his dark, handsome looks, his intense artist's gaze. The two first met in the 60s, when Roy wandered into a music shop in Toronto. And when I was in there looking around, I heard this music playing downstairs, an organ being played downstairs. So I asked them, who's, who's downstairs playing the organ? And they said, well, that's Louis Gondos. Would you be interested in taking some lessons? And I said, yeah. <laughs> Well, that led to a great friendship, which lasted many years. Some memories stand out for Roy, like when Ivan invited him to perform a concert together after a few years of lessons. Because I said, you know, there are other people who are better musicians than I am at this point. But he said, but they're not you. So that meant something. And another, of a road trip. I took him to New York once. He wanted to go on the Johnny Carson show, but he never made arrangements here for an interview there, so they wouldn't have anything to do with him. So we drove to New York and back for no good reason. You just showed up at the... At, was and, it, and he thought he, could get, he would get on. <laughs> and that, it seems, was Ivan. An outsider, perhaps a little naive, but sure of his talent. It fits with the life story I'm able to piece together from archives and interviews today. Born in Hungary, 
He moves to Canada age two and shows musical promise. His parents manage to buy him a grand piano and conservatory lessons. In his early 20s, he forms a sort of orchestra of outsiders, a 64-piece classical group, mostly young people and fellow immigrants. He's quoted at the time by the Toronto Daily Star, saying his group shouldn't be looked at as amateurs. They're real professionals who, quote, haven't been able to break through the clique at the Toronto Symphony and CBC orchestras. They perform a concerto Gondos has written, dedicated to the Hungarian Revolution. And though the group disbands soon after, and Gondos finds himself playing on the cocktail circuit, he never stops composing. Years later, he tells a judge he's written 2,000 songs. Some he copyrights, but not the one he says he's never quite finished tinkering with. The one that becomes his signature tune, and that he ends up fighting over in court. Gondos called it Variations on a Theme in A Minor, and his old friend Roy remembers the day he heard it on the radio played by someone else. He was on his way to work as an elementary school principal. There was a Salada Tea commercial. I heard this commercial on my way to school one morning and I thought, that sounds like, sounds so familiar. I, I said, the Salada Tea commercial sounds like something you might have written. He phoned me back later the same day and he said, Roy, that is my music. My mom had a similar moment when she heard it a few years later. I thought, oh, great. Haygood has given royalties to Ivan so he could record that song. And, you know, there was no internet then. You couldn't look something up. But I bought a copy of The Homecoming, and there was nothing there about Ivan. There wasn't any reference. And I was just very angry. And so was Ivan Gondos, angry enough to file suit against Hardy, though not until several years had passed in 1981. The delay likely came down to finding a lawyer. A Deerhurst regular and friend finally took on the case. Roy Robson was a star witness in court, saying he'd heard Ivan play the song many years before the tea commercial aired. No doubt in your mind that it was, uh, that it was his song. Oh, definitely his song. There's another reason it took Ivan so long to launch the case and something that made him finally go for it. Ivan Gondos was dying of cancer. In fact, by the time the trial was scheduled, his doctor told him he shouldn't appear in court. But his lawyer had an idea. He booked a suite of rooms at the top of the Weston Hotel in Toronto and convinced the judge to hold court there with Ivan's doctor and nurses on hand. Apparently, it was a legal first in Canada. Defense lawyer Ken Cancellara was there. Peter, I'm telling you, it's, it's been 40, 42 years, 40 years, whatever. But I can visualize virtually every moment of the portion of the trial where we examined and cross-examined him on the top floor of the Western Hotel downtown Toronto because he needed to have a medical supervision at all times. And that's how the trial of Gondos v. Hardy got underway, with the plaintiff literally on his deathbed. Okay, we need to take a quick break. Storylines will be right back. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. 
And I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. I've had hundreds of trials involving everything, every possible issue you can think of. I've never seen or been involved in or heard of anything that resembled the scenario that we saw that morning. Virtually all the transcripts from the trial have been lost. But one day last summer, at the Archives of Ontario, I opened a box to find the yellowed court reporter's notes from that morning's testimony 42 years ago. It shows that Gondos was weak and at times in pain, taking breaks every 15 minutes, but still defiant. Take this exchange. When a lawyer asks him if he's ever been asked to play Haygood Hardy's The Homecoming at the Deerhurst Piano Lounge. Have I been asked by people to play the homecoming at Deerhurst? Yes. Numerous occasions. And did you play it? Well, I corrected them and said, this is the original version, the original piece. It is most embarrassing on occasion. And which piece did you play? Did you play your variation or did you play the homecoming? The only one I know was my own piece. I didn't play the homecoming. I said, this is is the original piece. I started looking for others who had testified on Ivan's behalf. But 40 years on, several have died. Others have seemingly vanished. One, a semi-retired lawyer named Gesta Abels, invited me to his beautiful, art-filled home overlooking the big pond in Toronto's High Park. And Gesta reached back in his memory, half a century, to his piano lessons with Ivan. Uh, he was very energetic. Uh, he could uh, razzle-dazzle on the piano. And when I would go for um, my music classes in the basement uh, of, of the studio there, uh, he would often be practicing, and it was a large space, and you could sit around and you could listen to him play. That's where Gesta says he first heard the melody. And no doubt in your mind that that was the song that you heard him uh, Yeah, no doubt. To this day, there's no doubt in my mind. Because I heard it many times in the basement. He would play it. He liked it. He played it. It was a lovely melody. Another witness for Ivan at the trial was John Arena, a legendary restaurateur in Toronto. He was the owner of Winston's, a fine dining restaurant popular with politicians, businessmen, and celebrities. Like Liberace, John Wayne, uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, all those people. John Arena was 98 years old when we spoke, still proud of his legacy at Winston's, which he said was more than a restaurant. It, it, was, a, it was a state of mind. People loved to be there. And for a few years in the 60s, Ivan Gondos was the piano player there. But you remembered Ivan playing that piece of music, that melody that, that sounded... Yes, I do, yes. John testified at the trial that... Ivan played his melody there so often that John came to call it Winston's theme. The Winston theme, that's right. Another witness for Ivan was an artist, Marcello Febo, who said that he was actually there sometime in the late 1950s when Ivan first wrote the melody. 
Febo died a few years ago, but this is his widow, Eileen. Yeah, I was at the trial uh, because my husband was a witness there. Yes. Remarkable. He, he knew, like, Ivan Gondas was a best friend of his for years. Their friendship was tested, though, when Ivan ran off with Marcello's first wife in the mid-70s. Even so, when Gondos went to court a few years later, Marcello Febo showed up to testify on his behalf. Marcello was definitely on Ivan's side, not because he was a friend, but because he believed he did write it, you know? Roy, Gesta, John, and even Marcello were all certain that the homecoming melody was really Ivan's song, and that they'd heard it years before. But at the trial, Hardy's lawyer hammered home the idea that these people couldn't be sure of what they'd heard years ago. These were everyday people, a school principal, a lawyer, a restaurateur, and a painter. They weren't musical experts. There is quite a bit of research about how people remember music and how well they remember it. It's an argument that likely wouldn't work in court today, according to McGill University neuroscientist, author, and music producer Dan Levitin, who has acted as a consultant in music plagiarism trials, including the case of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. He says we better understand now just how powerfully the brain does remember music. There have now been dozens of studies and a lot of confirmations of it that the average person with no musical training can remember rich details of songs that they like and enjoy. For example, uh, two-thirds of people, non-musicians, tend to remember the actual pitches, the absolute pitch of a song, not just starting it on any old note. They know what note it started on. Even if they can't name it and say, oh, well, that was an F sharp, they can, right. they can sing it. Uh, and they tend to remember the tempo. Ivan's lawyer didn't just rely on people's memories to make his case, though. He also introduced some tangible evidence. Sheet music that Gondos had supposedly photocopied in the 1960s, a full decade before the Salada Tea commercial, and given to his piano students. It showed his melody as part of a larger work, which he called the Children's Suite. See, Louis gave me a whole copy of the Children's Suite, as far as he had written it at that point. And Roy Robson was just one of his former students who submitted a Xerox copy as evidence. I couldn't play it. It was too complicated. But anyway, that's where the homecoming theme appeared. He gave it to you when? I, that's what they asked me, and I don't remember when. It was, it was shortly after I started taking lessons from him. Which was? I mean, it must have been in the early 60s. Okay. Yeah. Well before the 1970s. Oh, yeah. This ended up being a pivotal piece of evidence when one of the opposing lawyers challenged the date of the Xerox copy. Lawyer Ken Cancellara, who worked on the trial, recalls it was one of his colleagues who launched the attack. But it was brilliant because the long and the short of it, he found through an expert who testified at trial that, in fact, uh, the Xerox copy that Gondos had said had been written by him in 1965 could not have been done in 1965 because Xerox didn't have that kind of paper. And he found out that there were some, some markings on the paper that indicated to him that this was at the very earliest, 1974 to 1976. I tried for months to find a copy of the copy, but like so much else from this trial, it seems to be lost to time. 
To this day, Roy Robson maintains that his copy was the real thing. Oh, they said I was lying. They said I was lying about the music and the how it was printed and when it was printed. What, why would I lie? I took an oath to not lie. Everything I said was the truth. So what did Ivan Gondos make of all of this? Gondos didn't hear any of this testimony from his friends or former students. He never learned the judge's decision because Ivan Gondos was dead. Less than a month after that testimony in the hotel suite, Ivan died, aged 47. He left five children and virtually no assets, only his grand piano to his name. But his widow kept the case going in a real courthouse now, where experts sparred over whether the two pieces of music were truly the same. The judge in the end agreed that Ivan's variations and Hardy's homecoming were the same song. But that's only halfway to proving musical plagiarism in court. Ivan's lawyer would also need to show access, that Hardy, at some point, had heard Gondos play it. I was a... Uh, an agent for one time, and I got him playing at Sutton Place. So it's all my fault. If you hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> That's Roy Robson again, ruining the day he got Ivan a gig at Stop 33, the top floor restaurant at Toronto's swanky Sutton Place Hotel. Our suites have been home away from home for such people as prime ministers, royalty, and some of the world's premier performers who come to Toronto to entertain. Eileen Febo remembers the place well. It was a lounge. I used to go there too, back, way back when. <laughs> and um, that's probably where Haygood Hardy heard the music, I think, or Marcello thought, but mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, plagiarizing it. He just, it was in his head and he thought he wrote it maybe. Which is exactly what Ivan's lawyers argued, that on the night of September 25th, 1970, Haygood Hardy, who also sometimes played at Stop 33, was in the audience. That he even came up after to compliment Ivan on his original tune, his variations. And one day, a year or two later, as Haygood was trying to think of just the right music to help sell a cozy cup of tea, the melody spilled out. But at trial, Haygood denied he'd ever been there that fateful night, denied he'd ever heard Ivan play. Moreover, he said he had an alibi that night. He'd been working late at a recording studio, doing a Rice Krispies commercial. And that, for the judge, seemed to be enough. The dodgy Xerox hadn't helped Ivan's credibility, nor had questions that were raised about when Ivan made his recording of the song at Deerhurst before or after he'd heard the Salada tea commercial. So the judge sided with Hardy. There was no access, and therefore no plagiarism. Two Toronto musicians had simply written the same song, and it was a coincidence. The court decided that there was no copyright infringement, notwithstanding the similarity between the works. Quite the coincidence in the end. (laughs) That's Karis Craig, a professor at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, who still teaches the case of Gondos v. Hardy to her students today. Right? 
So this is the problem, and it's, again, something that comes up a lot in the application of the infringement doctrine. In Gondison Hardy, what had happened was... Partly because of the way the case turned on that concept of access. You know, when we're looking at the Gondison Hardy case, you're saying, okay, he was playing at the Sutton Place Hotel on this day. Was this other guy, like, sitting at the table, or was he not sitting at the table? Did he have that conversation, or was it just some other guy that looked like him? The idea of access is still there in plagiarism cases today, but the internet has turned it on its head. When a lesser-known artist sues Ed Sheeran or Katy Perry now, they don't need to prove that the star had seen them play live. Their music is on YouTube or TikTok, where it's assumed that anyone in the world has access to it. So you can't be like, I wasn't at the Sutton Place Hotel that night. Like, that's not going to help you, right? And that's kind of why the Gundas case is, is fun, because it's, it pulls out the legal issue, but in a scenario that almost couldn't happen anymore. And it says, like, this is profoundly important, but now you think it couldn't go that way. Which is why, more often than not these days, small-time musicians who allege they've been infringed will be given a songwriting credit on the hit. Though that's not what happened with Ivan Gondos. Still, looking back on the decision that's shaped Canadian music law for 40 years now, Karis Craig believes the judge did get it right. I don't think that anyone composing music could... You know, we can't uh, open their brain and see inside. They themselves don't know exactly how they came up with um, the particular refrain or the melody. Like, I think that, you know, creativity in any context is a sort of cumulative process. There's always inspiration. There's always input. You can't un um, hear things. <laughs> and if we really were, you know... Um, strident in our protection of original musical composition, I think it would just dramatically chill downstream creators. There was one court exhibit which, somewhat miraculously, did survive, and I wanted to play it for my mom. At one point, Hardy's lawyers wheeled a grand piano into the courtroom, and a local musician started to play. He played one piece after another. Number two. A French pop song from the 60s. Number three. A movie score by an Argentinian composer. Number five. A jazz standard that Ivan himself sometimes played. The real cherry on top was a piece written by Vivaldi more than 400 years ago. And as you can hear, all these melodies sound just like Ivan's and sound just like Haygood's. Hearing that, in a way, kind of breaks my heart to think that that melody line was already out there, because I've certainly always attributed it to Ivan. That, to me, that's Ivan's song. So to hear that tells me that the bones already probably existed, and it, it's kind of heartbreaking. I wanted to attribute it to Ivan. Now, I didn't set out to break my mom's heart, of course. I wanted to see if her story was true. And I looked for a smoking gun, but nothing turned up. As for me, 
I think it's quite possible that Haygood Hardy heard Ivan play the melody at Winston's or the Sutton Place or an airport hotel bar and unconsciously copied him later. I think it's possible, too, that Ivan heard the Salada Tea commercial and copied part of Hardy's work, improving his earlier melody. I did speak with Haygood Hardy's family, who say they'd rather not give an interview for this project. The trial was a difficult time, and they believe it contributed to his cancer and death some years later. Ivan's family, too, believes the fight over this melody ended his life early. Which makes it all the more remarkable that today, this piece of music that meant so much back then has been mostly forgotten. Haygood's original version isn't even on Spotify today, let alone Ivan's self-made recordings, and the people who remember the story are fading away too. Al Mayer and John Arena have passed away since I spoke with them. My mom just wishes that Ivan had done what she does when she writes a little music, Send a copy to yourself in the mail and stick it in a filing cabinet. Ivan didn't do that. Ivan was the filing cabinet. He carried it around in his soul all of the time. It just flowed and poured out of him all the time. I mean, all of a sudden, he would just play something incredible that we'd never heard before. Maybe he used some of the classic composers that had influenced him. Nevertheless, at that moment, that was his song. And that's, that's what we heard. So I'll leave things off with the one and only recording of Ivan's voice I was able to unearth. Live from the lounge at Deerhurst, here he is. So I'm just going to play my theme. It's called I'll Be Seeing You. And uh, that's my wish to you. Today's episode was produced by me. It was edited by A.C. Rowe, who is also the producer of Storylines. The show is a production of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. If you enjoy the show and care about original Canadian documentaries, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review and tell a friend about us. Have a know-it-all music obsessive in your life? A fellow lounge music enthusiast? This might be the episode for them. I'm Pete Mitten. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.